Welcome to the next episode of Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford, where we discuss all things college admissions. Joel and I have been having conversations about college admissions for years, and now we bring those to you. Our goal is to provide information to you, the listener, about the world of college admissions, the processes involved, and the current issues that are a part of the journey to post-secondary education. I'm Chris Reeves, independent college counselor, and I'm here with Joel Ford, school counselor at Connor High School in Hebron, Kentucky. Today, with us is Mike Piergowski, English teacher at Indian Hill High School in Cincinnati, Ohio, and podcast producer and sometimes regular contributing co-host. Today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to ever since we started generating ideas for this show. I remember making that list of topics in March of 2019. So uh, today we're going to learn about HBCUs, uh, which stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And we're going to approach it from three directions. Uh, One, from its past. How did the first HBCUs develop? Um, Along with just some basic history of HBCUs. Uh, Present, current trends and issues facing today's HBCUs. And future Um, What is the future for HBCUs in 2021 and beyond? But before we do that, let's open up with everyone's favorite game. Or go. Joel, you give me the headline, and I'll tell you whether I want to know more about it, or for you to go ahead to the next headline, go. Ready with the first headline? All right. And you, you may have to prompt me again, because if you remember last time, I got my Cano and my Go confused. So Okay. So Cano, I want to know more about All it. All right. Go means go on. I'll still screw up. I'll topic. still screw up. You probably will. All right. Uh, headline number one, President Biden exploring student loan forgiveness options. Go. All right. Uh, headline number two, the Department of Education discharges $1.6 billion of debt for 45 HBCUs. Cano, what's our topic? So diverse issues in higher education reported the Education Department on f- Friday, the first week of, of April, uh, quote, issued $1.6 billion in debt relief for 45 historically black colleges and universities. The funding was allocated under the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act, say that one five times fast, passed in December 2020. New Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said in a release, quote, our HBCUs have long been on an uneven playing field financially as compared to many other post-secondary institutions. This relief will further support these mission-critical institutions and help to ensure that they have more resources to educate and graduate students during the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. That's it's great. I wonder it's you know for human beings like me that's a lot of money, but I wonder I wonder the true dent. I mean again, you know, not not it's great. It's great, but I'm I wonder I wonder what else is needed. That, well, and I wonder, you know, what happens after hopefully COVID-19 is over. Um, right. Is it, is this just a one-time thing or is this going to inspire our government? To, to do more. To do more. Okay, yeah. Headline number three, President Biden proposes $45 billion in research funding at minority-serving colleges. Definitely Cano. I, I like the thought of the minority colleges piece and the research piece. I'm interested in this. So Higher Ed Dive uh, on April 1st reported uh, that, quote, minority-serving institutions, including historically black colleges, would get around $30 billion to invest in their research and related facilities through President Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal. 
the American Jobs Plan also calls on co- Congress to allocate $15 billion to create up to 200 research incubators at these schools and to form a climate-focused national lab affiliated with an HBCU. I like the thought that there's some numbers behind it, like trying to get 200. I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, how does this, how far does this go? Right. But, but to have uh, 200 research opportunities, that's 200, at least 200 students who, who are going to get some, some awesome experience. So yeah. I, hope that, I hope that works out well. Okay. Uh, headline number four, pandemic makes applying for college for students nearly impossible. Go. I don't, I, I'm tired of that stuff. Okay. I, my response to that headline, duh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, go. Next and headline, please. Number five. This one's also going to be a go, I predicted. Fewer students are filling out FAFSA for college aid. No, I'm going to, I want to know what this really? is. Really? Yeah, I do. I, I'm curious. The Associated Press reports that fewer students are filling out the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. The Daily Press reported Friday that applications were down 8.2% nationwide. Uh, they cited in Virginia, the drop in applications was slightly steeper at 8.7%. The decrease in applications is even more pronounced at schools in which most, um, in, let's try again, the decrease in applications is, quote, even more pronounced at schools in which most of the students are non-white or from low-income families, end quote. Students at the state's low-income high schools have filed roughly 31% fewer applications this year. Yeah, it's, it's the, the gap is widening. Anytime there are difficulties, people with resources manage the difficulties and the obstacles and whatever it is, and people who don't have resources can't. And thus, the gap, the gap widens. Uh, final, final article. Right? All right. Tennessee may owe public HBCU up to $544 million due to chronic underfunding. Well, let's hear it. It's the last one. Cano. All right. Higher Ed Dive reports that Tennessee may owe its publicly public historically black university up to $544 million due to chronic underfunding, according to a state legislative analysis. The audit found the state didn't properly match federal land grant funds to Tennessee State University for decades. Some lawmakers are pushing to make up for the shortfall, according to local media reports. Uh, mega donors and recent federal actions have given some HBCUs a financial windfall over the past year, but experts note that more needs to be done to make up for a long history of underfunding and systemic racism. Well, not surprising. And, you know, if that's if that's the case and the numbers don't add up, they they uh, need to rectify that. So, uh, oh, any thoughts from you? Well, just if it's happened in Tennessee... I can guarantee it's happened in other states oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. So maybe this is uh, the first example of... Well, and maybe um, causing other people to put some eyes on things. If sure. They, if they haven't already. Sure. Okay, sure. Great headlines for this episode. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, it's time to learn more about historically black colleges and universities. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Today's topic is about HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. In Kentucky, where we live, there are two HBCUs, Kentucky State University in Frankfurt and Simmons College 
of Kentucky in Louisville. And Chris, I grew up not too far away from Nashville, uh, just on the Kentucky side of, of the border. Uh, so I grew up hearing a lot about Tennessee State University and Fisk University as well, uh, growing up in that area. Look, I know there are more HBCUs out there. So Joel, you are the resident historian on the podcast, as always. Can you tell us a bit about HBCUs from a historical perspective? Sure, absolutely. So um, let me start with what was uh, a direct quote from the Department of Education website, and then we'll get into some more details um, about HBCUs. So the Higher Education Act of 1965 defines an HBCU as, quote, any historically black college or university that was established prior to 1964 whose principal mission was and is the education of black Americans and that is accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association determined by the Secretary of Education to be a reliable authority as to the quality of training offered or is, according to such an agency or association, making reasonable progress toward accreditation. Wow, that's a lot of definition speak right there. <laughs> Keep going, sir. Okay, so, you know, when we were starting to do the research, um, I was trying to figure out how many HBCUs there are. Um, and so the number really was was a little bit varied depending on where I looked. Um, but I, I found one website that um, listed 107 um, as the number. And it looked like maybe 104 that were currently operating. Okay. Um, so then I started counting by state because I was curious. Um, and it looked like Alabama leads the way uh, with 15. And then Georgia and North Carolina tied for second with 12 each. Um, getting into the history of it, uh, most eight of, of HBCUs, most HBCUs were established in the South after the American Civil War, um, many times with the assistance of religious missionary organizations from the North. Uh, the first uh, university, three months after the end of the Civil War, Atlanta University, uh, was the first HBCU in the southern United States. Um, now, Atlanta University has gone on to consolidate and perform and form what we know today as Clark Atlanta University. Um, but Atlanta University was the first um, in the nation to award bachelor's degrees uh, to African Americans in the South. Um, Clark College, which is the other part that became Clark Atlanta, was the first four-year liberal arts college okay. to serve African-American gotcha. students. All right. Okay. But um, as to, as to the, the legalities, the laws that were passed that created HBCUs, um, in 1862, uh, the federal government passed something called the Morrill Act, which provided for land-grant colleges in each state. Um, and so... Um, the, the mission of those colleges were, was to focus on teaching practical agriculture, science, military science, and engineering. Um, what they found, um, some educational institutions that were established under that act were open to African-Americans, but 17 states, primarily in the South, um, required uh, their systems to be segregated and generally excluded African-American students from their land-grant colleges. So Congress passed the second Morrill Act in 1890, 
um, which required states to establish a separate land-grant college for African-Americans if they were being excluded from the existing land-grant college. I'd like to point out that that's 28 years. Right. Like 28 years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Like when you look back at history and 28 years seems like, oh, it's 28 years later, whatever. It's but an entire generation. Yeah, it's an entire generation. So let's, I'd, I'd like to note that as you, as you go through your, right. as you go through your history. So it, it, because of that second moral act of 1890, a lot of the HBCUs then were founded to, to go along with that second moral act. Um, and so that's where many, that particular era of history, that's where many HBCUs, that time frame seems uh, to be when many HBCUs were founded. Okay. okay? So like, like after 1890, you're saying, is things that, began to roll a little bit more. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. One thing I didn't know a lot about um, as I was as I was kind of doing the research on this um, in the 1930s. Obviously, we know in Europe the rise of Nazi Germany. A lot of um, Jewish scholars and professors were getting away from Nazi Germany. A lot of them were coming to the United States they weren't finding jobs because of anti-Semitism. And the one place, uh, the one group of colleges that were welcoming Jewish scholars in were HBCUs. And so in the 1930s and 40s, um, you saw an increase um, of faculty that were being hired uh, from Europe as they were escaping Nazi Germany, which I thought was very interesting. No, I, you know, as, as everyone knows, we talk about, you know, the reason we do some of our episodes is very selfish because we, we, we pick things. We don't want to do episodes on things we don't know. We, right. want, we want, we want to learn about things or, you know, we want, we don't want to do episodes on a bunch of things that we already think we know. We, we really want to learn. Right. As we do this. So, um, just keep going couple, history, history guy, keep going. A couple other things. Uh, the Higher Education Act in 1965 established a program for direct federal grants to HBCUs um, to support those colleges. Um, Part B of the act specifically provided um, for formula-based grants. Um, and then by 1980, Jimmy Carter, as president, signed an executive order to distribute adequate resources and funds to strengthen the nation's public and private HBCUs um, in 1989. President George H.W. Bush um, created a presidential advisory board on HBCUs. Um, and, and then, you know, I went and kind of looked at some statistics. Okay. Um, so these statistics are going to come from the National Center for Education Statistics. Um, and, and this first one, this is kind of where I was a little confused about the the total number of HBCUs because it was a different number than what I had found before. Right. Um, according to the, the National Center for Education Statistics, they listed in 2018 that there were 101 HBCUs. Um, 51 were public institutions, 50 were private uh, nonprofit institutions. Uh, but as far as trends for HBCUs, uh, between 1976 and 2010, the number of HBCU students increased 47%, um, then decreased 11% between 2010 and 2018. 
Um, in comparison, the number of students in all degree-granting institutions increased 91% between 1976 and 2010, and then decreased 7% between 2010 and 2018. Um, so um, a similar rise and then kind of a, a little bit of a drop um, in the 2010s, 20-teens. Diversity at HBCUs has increased over time. Um, by 2018, 24% um, of students um, were non-African Americans, um, compared with 15% in 1976. Um, female enrollment uh, at HBCUs has been higher than male enrollment every year since 1976. Um, the Percentage of female enrollment increased from 53% in fall 1976 to 62% in fall 2018. Um, in 2018, some 88% of HBCU students attended four-year institutions, 12% attended two-year institutions, um, and it was 76-24 uh, between public and private institutions. Okay. Um, in academic year 2017-18, 48,300 degrees, roughly, uh, were conferred by HBCUs. Um, associate's degrees were 11%, 68% were bachelor's degrees, 16% were master's, 5% were doctorates. Um, so um, of the, the degrees conferred by HBCUs, uh, the majority, 74%, uh, were conferred to African-American students. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, there's tons and tons of, of statistics and things out there with HBCUs. We could go on and on. Um, well, we, we can't go on and on. We Joel, can't go on and on. Because, but, okay, fine. We looked up a bunch of stuff. We, yeah. we you know, you got that. You got that. You're a good researcher. We, we get we get the data out there. But, like, I want to know more about HBCUs today, more importantly mm -hmm. for the future. Um, and, and like, like we always say, our guests are smarter than us and can educate us. Way smarter. I, yeah, I know. We need to take <laughs> a break and come back. Let's, let's talk more about, about HBCUs with today's guests. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Chris, do us the pleasure of introducing today's guests. Sure thing. Our first guest is Alicia Oglesby, who is the Director of School and College Counseling at Bishop McNamara High School in Prince George's County, Maryland. Prior to that, she has served at various schools and programs throughout Washington and Philadelphia. She has a master's degree, I'm sorry, she has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Howard University, a master's degree in clinical counseling and applied psychology from Chestnut Hill College. And she has completed a variety of coursework from Virginia Tech, Penn, Arcadia University, and Harvard. She is also the author of Interrupting Racism, Equity and Social Justice in School Counseling. Alicia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. It's good to be here. It's awesome to have you. I'm so excited that I finally get to meet you in person. <laughs> All right. Our second guest is Zachary Rogers, admissions counselor for Delaware State University in Dover, Delaware. 
Prior to that, he served as an admissions officer for Morgan State University, as well as a freelance sports writer. He has a bachelor's degree in history. I knew that was coming. From Morgan State University and a master's degree in contemporary communications from Notre Dame of Maryland University. Zachary, thank you for joining us today. Happy Friday, and thank you for allowing me to jump on your podcast. I'm excited. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I, jo- Joel, you care if I ask this first question that, oh, that we always want to know? Go right uh, and We'll do our best to kind of direct so you all don't know, you know, jump in on each other. Uh, so we'll start with Alicia. Why did you Why did you choose to attend an HBCU? Yeah, it's it's actually a, a really cool and interesting story um, that goes back to my middle school days. Um, so I grew up in Philly, and I lived next door to a family. And the youngest daughter in the family was one of my really close friends, and she had an older brother. And so when we were, I guess, in maybe sixth or seventh grade, I remember him walking up the steps. And I was thinking like, oh, I haven't seen him in, in a while. Like, where has, you know, where has he been? I asked his sister, where has he been? And she said he spent his first year at college. So he was in college in D.C. And I was like, oh, OK, that's cool. And he came up the steps wearing like this, this amazing blue and white jacket with this giant H on the back. <laughs> and he just looked so confident and comfortable and he was like, you know, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? And he just walked in the house. And I was like, well, where does he go? What is that school? And she said, Howard University. And so I said, oh, OK, you know, I'm in sixth and seventh grade. Like, I don't know very much about, you know, colleges outside of Philly at that point. And so it just stuck with me. And that moment stuck with me for years. And so when I was in high school, thankfully, I was a, you know, pretty straight A student and I looked it up and I saw that it was an HBCU and I was familiar with with HBCUs my mom went to Cheney for graduate school um, and so I was just excited about the possibility of being surrounded by these incredibly brilliant and talented black people from all over the world um, you know who wouldn't want to do that and so I applied. Thankfully, I, I was admitted. I visited campus and I thought this is this is where I need to be. Um, and so it was, you know, pretty much no looking back from there. And I'm still pretty active in the Alumni Association. That is a great Isn't story. It? Like that. Yeah, like it really is. I mean, you're talking about a sixth or seventh sixth grader. Grade. That's super, that's yeah. really formative. Yeah. And it, it, it literally stuck with it you. It did. It did. And I think what what made an impression on me the most is that like he was a really great person. Like he was just a, a nice guy, smart, like someone that you could look up to. So knowing that he chose a school like Howard made me think I could, you know, I could be that way too. Right. And you said, I took a note on this. You used the phrase, he looked confident and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to get into it in a little more depth soon. I want to hear why Zachary picked his school. But, but I'm imagining that, that that matters a lot. Like, I think this is going to come back up in our conversation it, yeah. and, and, and how people are transformed. Yes. Uh, before, I, before I go off on that tangent, Zachary, why did, why did, you, why did you choose your school? 
Yeah, my story is a little bit. I mean, I can't follow up after Miss Oglesby. My story. My <laughs> Nobody can. Little, Nobody can, Zachary. <laughs> my story is a little bit different. Um, throughout my school, throughout growing up, I've always been told that I was different, or you know, they tried to place an IEP, which there's nothing wrong with the IEP, um, because everybody learns differently. But for me, I was a, more of a visual learner, and it was it took a lot for me to be engaged. And if I'm being honest, back then teachers weren't as creative as they were today. So they tried to place me in a box. So I wasn't necessarily the best student, not because I couldn't do it, but because I wasn't applying myself and then I just wasn't engaged. So my, my I want to say like I was a late bloomer, but my 11th grade, the 12th senior year, I started, I got a 4.0 that whole year, my senior year. But my counselors, if you weren't going to University of Maryland, which is College Park, I'm from the DMV um, from Maryland. So if you weren't going to College Park, if you weren't going to Salisbury, they'd be like, well, you can go to the military, or you can go to uh, Montgomery College. And there's nothing wrong with community college, but for me, I didn't like the connotation that it came with. Like, it was just like, oh, go there because there's nothing else for you. So my senior year, I didn't really know I could go to college until like literally the my senior year. Like, I'm about to graduate in June. It's probably like April. So I'm applying to all these schools. Um, I love basketball. I probably could have played D2 or D3, but in my head, I thought I was going to go D1, but didn't happen. So and that's okay. So I was just applying to schools. I didn't get into any of them. But then I started doing my research, and I was like, "Schools in Maryland, schools in Virginia." And I ran into Hampton, and I ran into Morgan. Um, I submitted an application for both. I got into both. Um, my dad lives in Richmond, Virginia, so I was like, "Oh, that'll be easy." Um, I lived with this um, lady for eighteen years, <laughs> if not more. And when I got into both, she was like, "I really can't afford Howard." Um, I mean Hampton. She was like, I "Really can't afford Hampton." And I was like, okay, mom, cool. So then to this day, she'll be like, Zach, I never said that. We would have figured it out if you really wanted to go to Hampton. <laughs> but um, I, I don't even try to argue with her. So I ended up going to Morgan, um, and it changed my life. Um, so that's how I ended up going to my school. I mean, well, you know what? That is a great story. It's a great story because it's like, in some ways, it's 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 like two sides of a spectrum as far as as far as you know where where you kind of started, and then you're you are working at an HBCU. So you literally like right now it it's maybe, maybe, I mean, you can tell me, I'm just guessing, but I'm like, you're, you know, you're giving back. You are, you are, you, you are, this is like your life at this point. It's um, a big deal. Yeah, I would definitely say so. It's funny. Um, I am giving back. Um, Morgan's Alumni Association is probably trying to kick down my door to give an actual monotation. Uh, <laughs> actually but, uh, give back. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, you know, I worked there for you guys for like four years. Uh, let me get my pockets together, then I'll start donating financially. Right, there better. you go. Yeah. So I want to get into kind of, you know, Chris said we would come back to um, some of the some of the ideas of transformation and things. I, I want to give you guys some statistics that we found, and then just kind of get your reaction. And Chris, I may split these up because um, sure. I, I think there's there's probably two different conversations. So okay. these statistics are from the Brookings Institution, um, and what what it did there were two charts. Um, the first chart um, it compared HBCU and non HBCU. And the, the caption was percentage of black college graduates who are thriving in elements of well-being. And then the second one uh, was just percent of college graduates, black college graduates who strongly agree between HBCU and non-HBCU. Okay. So um, the first one, financial well-being, uh, managing your economic life to reduce stress and increase security. Uh, HBCU graduates, 40 
non-HBCU 29. Um, liking what you do each day, being motivated to achieve your goals, HBCUs 51%, non-HBCUs 43. Um, having strong and supportive relationships and love in your life, 54% for HBCUs, 48 for non-HBCUs. Um, and then the the strongly agree categories. Wait, wait, prof- let's stop there. Can we stop there? Can we okay, do- we'll split it in three. Um, so, okay, so I'm just curious about the reaction to those right to those numbers. And and did we go through it way too fast? So in that first set, um, graduates from HBCUs um, had had what seems like uh, better relationships, better better lives. More enjoyable lives, um, better better economic um, stability. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Lot lots of thoughts. I think, um, I and I have these conversations often because I have about you know five or six friends who went to predominantly white institutions um, like Temple and. Um, University of Albany and, you know, other schools. And then I had this conversation with my, you know, friends that I went to Howard with, other high school counselors who have attended HBCUs. Um, and the sense of pride is is very real and palpable. And I think that it really is, attending an HBCU is really an opportunity for Black people to be in community and to learn and grow, right? Because it's a it's a very um, it's quick developmental stage when you're you know exiting teenage adolescence and you're entering young adulthood, um, and so to be able to do that in an environment that was designed for you. Um, is, is, is incredibly special. And so I think, um, you know, I certainly have black friends who went to white schools and are doing fine. Um, but there's something very special about the connection that HBCU grads have with each other, where we really bond and connect over this shared lived experience. Um, and sometimes it's kind of hard to quantify um, and qualify, but I really think sure. that it is embedded in the mission and the purpose of the university, of the college, of the professors who are there, who want to be there educating Black people. Um, and it's, it's very powerful. Um, and so I'm not surprised by those statistics. So those statistics. Zachary, do you use um, any statistics or anything like that as you recruit students? Like, do you, do you share like, hey, here's here's some 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 data we we find, or is it just more? Oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was saying, or is it just more experiential and those types of things? Like, do you tell the story or do you use the numbers also? I do both because oftentimes, uh, as a sports as a freelance sports journalist, you can manipulate numbers, right? So we have this endless discussion about who's better, LeBron or MJ, and it's just like, all right, you can have that discussion to your blue in the face, but the man went six and zero in the finals, right? You just can't debate that. <laughs> But that's neither that's neither here nor there. But um No, it matters. It matters. Yeah. <laughs> but um I would say I use both because I'm not surprised by the numbers because a lot of times, oftentimes parents are very like uh they, they, they have a very closed mind when it comes to HBCUs and they're like, Well, what do they produce? 
And it's like when you look at the education field, 60 percent of people of color that are in education went to an HBCU. 60 percent of people that are in the clinical field or the medical field graduated from HBCU. It's just it's community. Like I'm close to everybody and that I. So my room, I kind of cheated. My roommate in college was my best friend that I knew since fourth grade. So okay, like everybody's right. like, well, that's how good. was the roommate? You know, so I, I kind of got over that. But we're all close to this day. Um, when I joined my fraternity, um, I was in there was one year where I was in four weddings and I burned a hole in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. But yeah. they were all either they were my line brothers or they my pro fights. Like, so I'm not surprised by that because you build community. There was times where we all didn't have money, but we put our money in the bucket. And we would all go to this place called Save a Lot, and we would go buy all this food grocery store. We <laughs> have our Thanksgiving. I know Save a Lot. Yeah. Yep. So it's like you 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 foster a community, and you um you kind of really you kind of go through life. You have your ups, you have your downs, but you know that you're gonna have somebody. Not to say that 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 doesn't happen everywhere else, but in this world that we live in, it's kind of like a crabs in a barrel mentality. But when you're at the HBCU, the people that you surround yourself with is it's really not like that. Like they really care for you. Um. And it's lifelong bonds. Like, even though it's 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 funny, but it's not funny. So my friends that I was close with in my HBCU, out of all of us, only I only graduated with one one of my friends together. My next door neighbor, Kyle Dejan, uh, who's a teacher in Prince George's County, he was the only person I graduated with. But we're still close with everybody else. So it's like that community is, is yeah. priceless. So this second set of set of statistics, man, say that one yeah. um, isn't going to surprise you. But then we'll go into the third set. So the second set. Um, was to strongly agree. Uh, my professors at my university cared about me as a person. Fifty-eight percent for HBCUs, twenty-five for non-HBCUs. That's Felt supported, difference. thirty-five to twelve. Um, while attending, I had a mentor who encouraged me to pursue my goals and dreams. Fifty-four, forty-eight. Um, you know, so so um, I, those obviously go go right along with what. You both are saying well, Alicia led right into the first one. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, in the second, well, both of them really, which is you know, my professors cared about me as a person, like people who want to be there and want to educate black students. And it's, it's part of what they, what matters to them. So I, I'm, Alicia comment on this, please. Yeah. I think, um, I think that it, it, it probably isn't, talked about enough, but, you know, and, and I have these conversations with my students because I'm in Prince George's County. I'm at a predominantly black student high school. Um, so we have these conversations fairly often and we talk about what their experience is going to be like when they're on campus. And I, I really don't think that we, we interrogate the, the professor student relationship enough, especially at predominantly white institutions um, where, you know, just recently in the news in DC, there was a professor at Georgetown who was speaking negatively about her black students. And I think she's no longer at Georgetown, um, but this is an experience that, that is not unique to that particular school. Um, there are a lot of negative associations that professors, um, you know, university officials and um, administrators have about black people. I mean, anti-black sentiment is is everywhere, but I think especially in academia where, you know, there are majority white spaces and, you know, five, six, seven percent of the students on campus are black students. And so they're trying to figure out their way and they're in their, you know, getting these 
vibes and experiencing these microaggressions from from professors and people who they have to work with. Um, and you, you know, you don't entirely take all of that out of the equation at HBCUs. There are certainly certainly those issues there as well. But by and large, um, you know, it's it's unquestionable that I mean, it was it was unquestionable to me that my professors cared about me as a human being and wanted me right. to be successful and were willing to put that into action. Um, and everyone, you know, everyone can't say that. And so. Well, when I see that, you know, 25% yeah, in, this, in this survey, 20, that's, that's one out of only one out of four right. black students at a PWI uh, for our listeners. Uh, that's what people sometimes say for predominantly white institutions. Only one out of four said my professors cared about right. me. Right. That's, that's low. very low. That's very low. That's it's very low, and I'm paying twenty thousand dollars a year to attend this university, well, and I really more than that, more than that, it's all... right? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. yeah, I've been going through some financial aid packages. It's more than that, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So crazy. All right. Yeah. So then, finally, set number three, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read all of these number because there's a lot of dollar amounts, but. The general gist is um, HBCUs are able to spend about two-thirds the revenue per student um, as non-HBCUs. Um, they receive less revenue from tuition than other, other schools do, non-HBCUs. Um, their endowments typically um, are lower um, than non-HBCUs, and, and yet... HBCUs are still doing wonderful things and, and graduating students. So kind of speak to that, like the idea of, of, you know, less, well, mo- like less money. Work. Well, yeah. Like, like less money in, in, in putting in the work. You right. Know, is that, I don't, I'm curious what Zachary would have to say about that. Um, can I go back to the other question real quick? Oh, absolutely. Sorry. Yes. No, yes, you're good. Yes, no, yes. you're good. No, you're good. That question really, I have a funny story. Um, and I tell my students this all the time when they ask about faculty to staff ratio. Um, HBCUs in general, you get, like, it'll kind of tie into the next question, but a lot of them are smaller. Like, yeah, we have our huge HBCUs like FAMU, uh, North Carolina uh, A&T, but a majority of the HBCUs are built they're not as big. So like the ratio is smaller, but professors really do care because um, again, growing up in Montgomery County, it was diverse, but it was diverse with advertisement. Um, It's diverse when certain things happen or when we want to market a certain statistic, but I had a, and I don't mind anybody who's not African-American descent teaching about African-American history, but you need to be a scholar and you need to be unbiased. Um, But I would have a history teacher who would chuckle when he said the word Negro all the time. And it was very uncomfortable. So I didn't really know a lot of my history when I was in high school. So when I get to Morgan State, like I have this professor named Dr. Jelani Favors and he taught his African-American history course, like the Great Debaters, um, which was shot at Wiley, which is based on Wiley College. Um, but I remember this, uh, my department chair, her name was um, ooh, uh, Dr. Palmer. She was all of but yay high. And I remember this class, we had to take the history, histor- historiography, the history of history, no, problem solving. And you basically went back to when the Constitution was founded, uh, 1776, when America came together. And we had to basically ask questions without showing presentism. So um, anybody who knows Morgan, uh, it was it's a historic landmark or it's basically been honored as a historic uh, national treasure. 
Um, so one of the buildings is Holmes Hall, which is the clock tower. And if you go upstairs, it's an old elevator. And then when you go upstairs, you start sweating instantly or because it's just like a workout to get up there. And that's where our office is. And I didn't understand the homework. And I wasn't really doing too good in that class. That was my class where I'm going to get a C and I'll be okay. So I get up there. And again, she's all VA high. And I'm like, Miss Nibs, I need to see Dr. Palmer immediately. Do you have an appointment? Yes. I just talked to you like yesterday. She was like, okay. So I get to Dr. Palmer. My arms are folded. And I'm like, Dr. Palmer, I don't get this homework. Da, da, da. And she said, relax, darling. You need, you're need you stressing out. You need to put your arms down. You're too tense. And I'm just like, lady, I'm trying to, in my head, I'm like, lady, I'm trying to figure this out. So I asked her the question and she was like, think about it. It's not that hard. And I'm like, it is Dr. Palmer. That's why I'm here. Darling, relax. You're too tense. And she put my arms down again. So then I was like, Dr. Palmer, I do not get it. So, you know me, growing up, my parents always taught me to respect my elders, be respectful. So she tells me, your brain is too tight. Go walk outside, come back around. So anybody who knows Holmes Hall, you have to go down the steps. And then the way that the building is, when you go down the steps outside, it takes you to the parking lot of that building and you go all the way back around. So I walked all the way downstairs, all the way around the parking lot, go back upstairs. Dr. Palmer, I don't understand. Oh, the answer is that. She said, yeah, darling, now get out of my office. Have a good day. But- it was those types of environments where they challenged you. They didn't give you the answer. They really wanted you to make you think. So like, I think of Dr. Jelani favors. I think of Dr. Palmer because they instilled a sense of passion um, about the brand and about learning about yourself. So I, when those numbers um, come up, they really do care. Like, um, and I'm still close to my professors. Um, the person who helped me get into sports journalism, unfortunately he has cancer right now, but he always shoots me like an inspiring message. And he'll be like, you got this, you can do this. And then I remember he was like, Hey, um, there's a documentary on St. Francis football. And before that, he was like, I can, I can give you the coach's number if you want to cover the game. But it's just like, I've been out of school since 2013 from Morgan and you're still reaching out to me about internships or jobs. So like, they really do care. Like it's, they re- they'll tell you you're doing terrible in a loving way, but they really do care. That's important. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Thanks. I'm sorry for skipping you on that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is a good story. And I appreciate that. Great deal. Well, and I, you know, sitting there listening to that story and, you know, we were talking about basically there's there's less money at HBCUs, but it sounds like the relationships, though, the, and, and the, 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 the mission and the pride and all the things you guys have talked about, those are things that go beyond money. Um, and And we'll get into it later, but the, the the concept of well anyway um, the next question is it Joel listen I want to know yeah. what are so at this point I mean we've led up to this but we we all work with students what are some of the reasons to consider an HBCU and and, and in addition to that kind of what are the qualities and characteristics that would be unique to HBCUs so. I would say um, homecomings. So <laughs> uh, maybe a little bias. Kentucky State. Um, Kentucky State. We'll talk about yes. that. I went on a tour of Kentucky State with some students, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Do we just go to this school for one day a year?" Because <laughs> like that, like that. That's what it felt like. They love homecoming. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know Zachary is nodding his head. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's like the. Um, like an outward expression of how we enjoy each other, enjoy each other's company, enjoy each other's music, enjoy each other's, um, you know, 
community, enjoy each other's, you know, creativity, all these, all these sorts of things wrapped up into a, a really fun weekend. Um, and, you know, I've been to homecomings on, on many campuses and it's just, it's just an incredibly beautiful, wonderful time. And so I know it's usually just once a year, but it's really like, um, almost like the culmination of, of the whole school year. I think students also choose HBCUs because of those relationships with professors. Um, I know it's, it's, I know I have many friends, many black male friends who went into college was thinking that they were going to do another four years of schooling. Um, and they were encouraged to pursue master's degrees. They were encouraged to pursue PhDs. They were emailed internship links and they were, um, you know, given references, you know, that they didn't necessarily even ask for. Um, but professors and, and administrators and deans knew um, that that's, that's what's needed. And so I think all of all of those sorts of things are are it's just like you know it's just a, another day right it's not exceptional for that particular community um it's just what you do right you look out for each other and i think that's I like that's it, really oh, what 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 makes um the experience unique i so what i what i hear is that people are from the last few stories and, and comments are always doing extra to help their students and always, you know, you talk about somebody who will go above and beyond, but that's like just the every day. That's just how it is. It's, you know, picture, picture like that day, somebody went above and beyond for you. Uh, and then, and then this is what it's like every day at an HBCU. So, so can I, Zachary, can I ask you a question to go along with this? And Chris, I'm going off script for a second, but it just popped into sure. my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're recruiting students to potentially come to Delaware state, how do you how do you get that message across because uh, you know uh, it's 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 more personal than what you can show in a view book or or on a website obviously so how do you how do you convey those those advantages that an HBCU can give how do you convey that to students that you're working with um, our director, uh, Mr. Kareem McElmore, he does an amazing job of uh, recording footage. So we're actually showing what the students are doing here. Um, definitely sharing my experience and just allowing students to understand you may have messed up in high school or you may have not been what you thought you were in high school. You may not have everything figured out. I still don't have anything figured out. I wake up one day and like, I don't want to wear this sock, you know, so you're still figuring out life. But just explaining to them that you will be able to see yourself and you'll be able to grow and this will be your home for four years and you don't have to be afraid to be yourself. Um, and when I'm going to school, like no matter who you are, no matter what your race is, your background is, when I'm talking to students that are of Asian descent or of Hispanic descent or of Caucasian descent, I'm saying you would still be able to come here and have an effective time, too, because the one thing about HBCUs is they're inclusive. We've never had a history where we uh, didn't allow certain people to come in. We welcome anybody, everybody. Right. However, mm -hmm. we're still going to hold true to our foundation, but that can include you too, because you think about it, the first um, Caucasian woman for Delta Sigma Theta was Joanne Mulholland. And a lot of people don't know that she was, um, Delta Sigma Theta um, is one of, you know, the Divine Nine organizations, sororities. Um, and she was haunted by the uh, Ku Klux Klan and she did a lot of protesting and things of that nature. So like, no matter where you come from, just explaining that you can have fun and you can see yourself at Delaware State University or 
a Tuskegee or a Hampton or a Howard or a, you know, um, or um, let me let me say one of my mid because they'll get mad. Uh, um, Benedict College or you know, I had to give because they'll be like y'all. Y'all always say the mid the Mid Atlantic or oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> How would you? I hope I'm not doing too much off the subject here, but I'm very curious about this. How would you say, Zachary, you changed from your first day freshman going into college to the time you graduated? Um, I learned the word accountability. <laughs> that's, that's um, a, well, you're, you're, you might be in the minority in this country. So, so, <laughs> so that's, 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 that's important. Uh, that's all. Yeah. Cool. What else? Um, I learned about accountability. Um, I was very timid when I came into college. Um, I didn't have confidence in myself. Um, I didn't have a, a sense of self-love or um, understanding. So I definitely got all those things. And then I got um, a sense of family and I was able to trust people and be more vulnerable. Um, so I definitely grew because um, I was able to um, step outside of, I had to do a lot of, uh, what's the word? Deconditioning. That's not a word, but uh, basically, um, the, all the things that I went through in high school, I basically learned how to get outside of that and crack that shell. So accountability, self-love, knowledge, wanting to grow and then help and serve other people. And my confidence shot through the roof. I mean, I still have work, work on that, but like my confidence definitely got better. I, I, that's, that's awesome. Alicia, what about you? What, from freshman, walking in the freshman year to graduating? Um, I definitely got a, a better sense of discipline. Um, I, I really did well in high school without much effort. And so I was um, not going to to bring that to um, Howard University and do well. So I learned very quickly that I needed to um, put forth more effort and communicate with my professors when I didn't understand something um, and self-advocate. So I, I I became a, a fierce self-advocate um, while at Howard and, you know, people who have gone there and, and had to work with the um, administration in getting registered for classes and paying bills and, you know, all those sorts of things. We, we laugh about it now. It wasn't funny then, but um, we learned how to, how to navigate systems of bureaucracy um, very well. So there isn't a receipt that I do not have a copy of um, <laughs> all these years later. So life lessons that that um, I definitely appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, Actually, uh, I'm going to I'm going to go to this question. So President Biden in both his campaign and since being sworn in as president has called for an increase in funding of ten billion dollars. Uh, to increase enrollment, uh, making the first two years of college at HBCUs free, and addressing the historic underfunding of HBCUs. Uh, what else do you think needs to be done on a state or federal level uh, to help support our nation's HBCUs? What, what else do you think needs to be done on a state or federal level to help support uh, or better support our nation's HBCUs? Um, did you want to answer that first? Uh, since you're famous, Ms. Oglesby? Okay. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so <laughs> I would say more so provide, yes, we are getting, uh, money, but a lot of people oftentimes when HBCs receive funding, people don't understand how much that really gets broken down. Right. Like mm. it is a lot. I'm not trying to sound like, I'm not trying to sound unappreciative, but 
it's not enough. And it's about time that those fundings are coming. Um, but you think about it, all right, so HBCU gets money. It may not go to the whole university. It may go to a specific budget. It may go to a specific building. When you look at other schools, predominantly white institutions, they are funded generally and consistently through the state or federal, depending if they're private, right? So I would say there needs to be more resources. Oftentimes when HBCUs have to get, when they get a new building, they have to go through a leasing company and they have to pretty much pay that off for a certain amount of years until it is officially theirs. So sometimes we could, I would say, provide more resources for new buildings um, and then upkeeping. So like if a, if a HBCU gets a new building, yes, the building is paid for or there's some type of contract, but there's no upkeeping fee. So like pretty much once you get it, it's up to the staff and faculty to keep it up. It's not there's not a budget where there's somebody that there's not a budget that will pay for the building to continue to be um, clean, revamped or replace certain merchandising if something gets old. So it's a lot of things. So I would say more resources for buildings or books or just scholarships in general. Yeah, I would I would totally agree um, and totally echo that. And I think, um, you know, when when people hear about because, you know, there was um, uh, I don't remember her name, but she's she divorced uh, Jeff Bezos um, and donated lots of money to HBCUs throughout the country. Um, and everyone was really excited and, you know, giving her a pat on the back when, yes, it was it was important for her to do. And, and I'm glad that she did it. Um, but it's also important to remember that HBCUs are, are enrolling um, mostly Black students. And there is absolutely, without question, still a huge wealth gap across the country. And so as long as that wealth gap exists, Black students are not going to be able to donate buildings <laughs> to universities and colleges in the way that white right. folks can. Um, and so, you know, we have we have maybe one or two generations of, of black families who have attended college versus, you know, white families who have had three, four, five, six generations. Um, I once met a student in D.C. in his in one of the buildings on on a pretty famous um, campus is named after his grandfather. So it's like this, this is what, you know, this is what we're comparing. Um, and certainly every PWI is not like that. But I think that it's really important to address the wealth gap and that when we get donations, um, it's wonderful and it helps, but we're still, you know, fighting against hundreds of years of wealth gap. Um, and so that's that's important to note when when we're talking about legislation. All right, you, I think you may, you may appreciate my next thoughts here, Alicia. <laughs> but so I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, so you made that comment about pat on the back. So like, let's say like two things happen that support HBCUs in America, and it becomes like this this big news, and it's a great thing, and we're and, and, no, and people are not unappreciative at all. But like these two big things, like paying off the loans and the big donation you're talking about, uh, that makes the news. But then like this is happening for PWIs like 10 times a day and like every day, all day. And, and you know, somebody does one thing for HBCUs and again, not unappreciative, but it's like you are the greatest human who has ever walked the planet Earth. Oh, my God. We love you so much. Thank you. Like that. Right. And like and I feel bad. I don't remember her name because unfortunately, that's how it sometimes happens when you are Mackenzie Scott. When you're married to a um, to a very famous person who owns Amazon. 
But but yeah, I mean, she was in the news for like how many days? Like at least three, <laughs> at least three or four days, right? And, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And and it was and it was good. I'm glad that she did it. I'm I'm glad that it got some attention to HBCUs. Right. I mean, that's, but it's like yeah, yeah. We we need that to be ongoing. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, because it's because every single day you're talking about millions of dollars being donated here and there, everywhere at PWIs, yes. and it happened. Okay, yeah. So. I, I read – this is really interesting because this happened literally yesterday. So I'm, I'm pulling up a little article, and it's something by Danny Tejada. And then he mentioned Akil Bellows' term, rejective colleges, uh, which is kind of interesting because Akil will always call it like it is. And then I keep reading, and I see Alicia Oglesby asks about institutions with over 50% white enrollment and over 10% black enrollment. Like I noticed Berea uh, in Kentucky on the list. Like I was super proud. Like, oh man, Berea, I love that school. Uh, well, there were three, and, three Kentucky schools on there. There were three list. Kentucky schools on there, but, but none of them fall into the, what common people would say, highly selective institutions, what Akil would call rejective institutions. But I, I know this isn't necessarily an HBCU like topic, but it was about you. So Alicia, start talking. My goodness, that was, and that, it it's so funny because Danny, Danny and I are friends out, outside of work and um, I was researching some schools with some students and my students were pretty shocked to see that some colleges that they're very familiar with have only five or six or seven percent black students. So it's not even representative of the nation. Some of them, it's, it's not even representative of the state. So it was it was really shocking and, and evident um, that they're, you know, by design, intentionally or unintentionally, um, Black students were being kept out and excluded from these schools. And so I said, well, tell me the schools that have a representative, you know, percentage of Black students right. on campus. Um and you know and make and they need to be accessible so so i I mean i already know the some of the most rejective colleges and and universities in in the country um, are still engines of inequality and so they they financially could absolutely enroll more low-income students in general um and don't by choice um but you know, making it making it accessible because I don't want to I don't want to include the the Stanford's and the Harvard's and the University of Chicago's um, because they're just impossible to to get in. I wanted to really think about schools that actually admit a lot of the students who apply, um, but are predominantly white institutions. And so the list was short, <laughs> as you saw. Yeah. Uh, the, the list was yeah, pretty was. short, um, and so it, it just really speaks to to the the. Um, the way in which black students are excluded and it's, it's, it's troubling ongoing. Um, so it was, it was eye opening though. And I'm glad he looked into it. It was. Yeah. yeah, he did. And it was eye opening. And like I said, as I was reading, I'm like, Oh, I'll be seeing her yeah. this week. Yeah. I'll be seeing her tomorrow. <laughs> um, Can I add on to that? Yes, please. It's, it's uh, so again, I'm my history background. Oftentimes it's like, when I when I have conversations with parents, like don't get me wrong, I, there's nothing wrong with a predominantly white institution. Um, it's just sometimes the narrative that gets spun, like HBCUs are inferior, which they're not. 
because they provide the same opportunities to everybody. So you think about right the the um, Negro leagues, right? They were created because baseball players, minority baseball players, did not have an opportunity to do elsewhere. But at one time, the uh, Negro leagues were providing more uh, talent than the actual baseball league. And then when you think about um, Power 500 college schools, um, HBCUs were dominating. All the talent were at HBCUs. But the thing was, we weren't able to keep up our resources or we didn't have the resources. So in 1940, 1950, you start seeing a lot of the power athletes going over to the Alabamas, the uh, the Clemsons. But before then, they were ter- they were garbage. But like, it's just like, okay. like I'm a huge sports fan, so I love sports. Like, don't get me wrong, but um, <laughs> that's a that's a narrative that kind of gets swept under the rug, and you're not learning about that in high school. You're not learning about that. You you kind of get taught the basics, um, the Martin Luther King. Oh, he was such a nice person, but then they don't have the fire. They don't have the two burning houses speech, or they 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 paint Malcolm X like this horrible militant person when all he was doing was regurgitating information that was provided to him. So just like uh. To go to what Ms. Oglesby said, the um, the lack of um, equality, it's on the same spectrum as it not being provided, not being passed out from an educational platform and curriculum. So it's just, it's interesting. I'm not surprised with the rejected list, but it's just understanding that there, there there's no right or wrong answer, but both will provide you with the opportunity. I've been in jobs where I've worked with somebody from Harvard and Yale, and I'm not saying they're not brilliant, but they were like, yeah, I got this because of my my degree. But it's like we're doing the same work. And in some cases, I'm doing more work than yeah. you are. Oh, but, no doubt. Mm. No doubt. Yeah, I I have – the school I'm in now has students – it's it's a lot of Appalachian students um, in eastern Kentucky. And they, they know the brand names. And they know what's local. And that's awesome. So that's how you know, their college list starts. But I'm trying to talk a whole lot more about, okay, what's in between and what are the experiences – What's the experience you might get at a brand name? How can we get an equal or better experience? And if I can continue to talk more about experience, 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 and I feel like that's where considering HBCUs, I mean, I think like even saying the phrase considering HBCUs is probably not even fair enough, you know? It's like, it's not even, it shouldn't be like an extra thing. It's just, it's like in my mind, I bring up CTCL, Colleges That Change Lives. You know, it's a group of schools that have a certain kind of trait characteristic and everybody is like oh yeah you should go to a ctcl well i think hbcu in the same should be thought of like in the same way which is this is a this is a type of experience that is way more valuable than you probably think and there you go all right chris we yeah. we we've got time maybe for one more question all right uh, do you want to you want to ask the last one i do i do uh here you go. More formal question asking, what is the role of HBCU in 2021 and beyond uh, with the continued social awakening toward issues of, of race and hopeful movement toward, toward racial equality? Are HBU still needed as institutions of higher learning? If so, and why? Exactly Dr. Dr. Oglesby. Yeah. I wish I was Dr. Oglesby. Not, not yet. Um, Are we just speaking that into yeah, existence? Yeah, speaking into so existence. Thank you. Thank you for that, Zachary. <laughs> I need that empowerment. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. They are as relevant today as they always have been. Um, they will continue to be relevant and purposeful um, and necessary going into the future, I think um, 
you know, it'll it'll be for for a, a quite a long time. Um, I would venture to guess maybe a couple hundred years um, where we will still need that space to learn yeah. and to thrive. Um, and I think that you know, from from my understanding and, and keeping up with many of the HBCUs throughout the country. They continue to evolve to meet the demands of the workforce. I mean, that has that has always been true, um, but also still be places where um, Black people can truly be authentic and struggle and um, you know figure out some of the the societal issues that we have um, always really been at the forefront of trying to solve. And I think as long as um, you know, the, the greater society respects and honors and um, truly listens to the expertise that comes out of HBCUs. Um, the more that our society does that, I think the better off we'll, we'll be as a country. Well said, man. Zachary, anything to add to that? Uh, no, she's always amazing as always. So it's always hard to follow up. Uh, I would just say, yes, they will be relevant. They always will be because the mission of HBCUs are to provide a chance at higher education for those who are not afforded it due to maybe social uh, or no financial needs or just GPA, late bloomers, or just students who want to learn more about themselves, culture. Um, I let a student in. He didn't necessarily fit the requirements, but I, he was very attentive on the call. He was very excited. He was asking questions. And I, and I called him. I said, look, I went to my director and I put in a word for you. You weren't supposed to get in, but you're going to get in. He started crying on the phone. I love that. Like, yeah, I love that. I love like, it. Yeah, awesome. You're going to make me cry. Come on. Right, right. Okay, no tears, no tears. I'm sorry. But yeah, and I was just like, that Like that gives you the joy uh, knowing that, you know, he may have not did everything he was supposed to do in high school. Or he may have just, it may have not clicked, but he's going to come here and he's going to be transformed. He's going to do better academically. He's going to join student clubs and organizations and he's going to have enjoy himself so that, and I'm definitely going to stay on him because I did put my name on the application. But, um, yeah, just giving them that opportunity makes the world, like, it makes it great. Um, so I definitely think they'll be needed. Um, it's just a place to foster confidence within yourself and self-love and knowing yourself. So I definitely think there will be. Um, it's at the forefront, especially with all the social injustice that's going on. But, again, the one thing that I love about HBC is we are inclusive. We welcome anybody and everybody based on your gen- gender, race, Spiritual belief, whatever, we welcome everybody in this one big melting pot, no matter which HBC you go to. And not just lip service, Zachary. Exactly. Right. And not just lip service, like actual. Yep. Actual, yep. Alicia, Zachary, we are so appreciative of you being on our podcast today. Honored. Uh, honored, yeah. Um, we feel like this has been a good discussion today. You guys are welcome back anytime. Um, thank you so much for your insight, your knowledge. Um, we're just, we're just happy to have you guys. And, and we, we were excited about the topic and we're, we're, we're so thankful that you guys were with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. And thank you for being an ally. Thank you for being champions with us. We uh, thank you for letting me, letting us come on the podcast. You all are awesome. Yeah, great. And I appreciate y'all for shedding the light on it. Yeah. This. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be time to look at HBCUs from our four lenses, and then we'll finish with Chris's words of wisdom. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. 
Joel, let's hit those four lenses to address all types of listeners to this podcast. I'm going to go first. All right. If you are an independent or school counselor, you have to become educated. You can't stay in your comfortable bubble. And I've been guilty of that too many times in my career, maybe in my life. Who knows? Uh, NACAC is what really got me out of that comfort zone. So, So don't forget to join NACAC. But now, learn about HBCUs. Intentionally visit HBCUs, then understand their value. Recommend HBCUs to your students to research and visit. If you're at a university, one of the things that stuck out to me in preparation for this episode was the list of statistics from the Brookings report that we talked about. The feelings of connectedness, support, and financial stability at HBCUs were significantly higher than in non-HBCU settings for black graduates. So if, you're, if you are an HBCU, keep doing what you're doing and stress those benefits to your potential recruits. That sense of belonging will lead to better experiences, better retention, better graduation rates, and so on. If you are a non-HBCU, learn how you can improve to better support your students of color and make sure that you collaborate with HBCUs. Even more, um, in regards to the idea that HBCUs are doing more with less in terms of funding, all colleges need to figure out how to do more with less, but then at a more basic level, let's finally fund HBCUs properly so that they can do more with more. Great, great advice for colleges, Joel. Uh, Parent, if you're a parent, Parents, we promote building a diverse college list from REIT schools to match schools to likely schools. If you live in a homogenous community like I do in Northern Kentucky, you need to realize your children may not have been exposed to enough diverse experience. Consider having your child and you take Harvard's implicit bias test. Most people will discover they don't do well. And the way to slowly remove your unrecognized biases is time with people not like you. When I worked in Owen County, a rural school, many of our students attended Kentucky State, and it changed the way they saw the world. So encourage your child to put an HBCU on the list and support their decision if they choose to go. Owen County kids went for the scholarships, but they came back with so much more. And finally, if you're a student... If you're building a college list, don't forget to think about HBCUs. HBCUs are well-established, quality institutions of higher learning that can help you connect to your college community and lead you successfully toward a college degree. There are over 100 great options out there, and one of those could be the perfect fit for you. And so with that, let's take our final break. And when we come back, we'll hear Chris's word of wisdom for this week. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford, where we will finish up today with Chris's words of wisdom. Chris, what do you have for us today? This week's word of wisdom is inspired by one of today's guests, because I already knew through her social media and reputation. It's slanted toward the profession and counselors today. The word is protect. If I had a student under her care, I would never worry. (laughs) 
ever. Heck, in a, in a national leadership sense, she's protecting students she doesn't even know and who don't know her. As a self-professed ruffler of feathers, uh, she puts students first, specifically students without resources and voice. With the NACAT Code of Ethics being recommended versus mandatory, our students will need more protection than ever. Understanding who actually needs protecting comes first. Those with no one in their corner, those without support and resources. Then arming yourself with knowledge and confidence will allow you to do the protecting. I saw a quote as I was preparing for this segment from Mother Teresa. There's nothing more calming in difficult moments than knowing there's someone fighting for you. Go forth. And remember, you can always listen to Get Schooled on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at at GetSchooled3 and on the internet at www.askmrreeves.com slash GetSchooled. So, Joel, I know you're excited. Tell us about our next episode. So we've had the wrath of Reeves. This next topic may induce the fire of Ford. <laughs> it's one that we both have a definite opinion about, and it's one that we'll have to put the disclaimer on about our opinions being our own and not reflective of our employers. Next time, we want to get into the concept of class rank, what it is, why students and parents seem to care about it so much, and what do colleges really think about the importance of class rank or the lack of importance of class rank? Joel, I cannot wait to see you lose your cool with this one. Should be a good episode coming up. That's next time on Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. We'll see you then. expressed by the host of the Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford podcast are their own and are not necessarily representative of any groups or schools to which they belong.